Welcome to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you can find my movie reviews and interviews 24-7 in print and online, including BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, you can find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And very, very excited I survived L.A. Film Festival. That in itself is an exciting thing. And for all of you filmmakers that I spoke with, uh, 33 interviews on the red carpet, another 45 sit-downs. All of you guys turned in some really magnificent work. Uh, I have to give a huge, huge shout-out to Joe Carnahan and Ben Bray Hernandez for El Chicano. An absolutely stunning, stunning film. I think El Chicano has... A distribution deal in place. I'm not 100% sure, but I that was my number one must-see festival film. Take note of that title. It is the first Latino superhero movie, all Latino cast. Absolutely outstanding. Um, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So be on the lookout for El Chicano. Some other great films to come out of LAFF. Ghostlight. Oh, Absolutely love that film. Stellar cast, Roger Bart, Carol Kane, Shannon Sosamon, uh, Carrie Elwes. Beautiful film, uh, and it revolves around the Scottish play, also known as Macbeth. Um, and it's hilarious. Um, some uh, brilliant web series. Brilliant, brilliant web series, Kiki and Kitty. Um that comes uh, courtesy of uh, Catriona McKenzie out of Australia. And Kiki and Kitty is absolutely hilarious. Kitty is a vagina that comes to life. Needless to say, it is laughter infused from beginning to end. Um, but check, uh, check the web, my website coming up uh, over the course of the next week or so. We'll have interviews out there, more reviews out there, in addition to current theatrical releases. So, but today, very, very excited today, have a guest whom I adore. She is back with us again. Uh, She was here last year. Now she's back this year. Writer-director Jamie Lynn Lippman has a new documentary out that is called Three Years in Pakistan, The Eric Adu Story. It is a fascinating story. It unfolded in the early 2000s. Uh, Eric happens to be a friend of Jamie's, and she revisits this story. He, an actor, and he was imprisoned in Pakistan for three years, accused of smuggling opium. So uh, the documentary is quite interesting. We're going to talk to Jamie Lynn all about it. And then Michael Green is with us at the midpoint of the show to talk about his latest film, Live. Our regular listeners, you'll n- remember that last week Asante Jones was with us talking about who plays a Detective Culver in that film. 
uh, and he talked about some of Michael's interesting techni- directorial techniques, camera angles, and how that affected his performance uh, in a freeing manner. So now we're going to get to hear from Michael himself. But to kick off today's show, a director whom uh, a writer director whom I adore, Sarah Colangelo. Um, a few years ago, Sarah had a film out called Little Accidents with Elizabeth Banks, Boyd Holbrook, Jacob Laughlin, Josh Lucas. Stunning, stunning film. Muted in these cool blues as a palette that fit the emotional tone of the film and what was unholding. It was a slow burn, and it was fascinating. Now she's back with a film that it's got some thriller elements to it. It, too, is a slow burn. This is The Kindergarten Teacher, and it is the story of a kindergarten teacher who sees genius in a young student. She obsesses over him, and to a large degree, she's a frustrated poet, and this child can just he comes up with poems off the top of his head. Uh, so there could be some jealousy in there, but this her obsessiveness with the with the five year old student it creates this moral and ethical ambiguity that we see unfold. Maggie Gyllenhaal is one of the finest actresses of our time when it comes to playing these psychologically complex women. And she does an outstanding job here as the school teacher, Lisa Spinelli. We get to meet a new young talent, Parker Sivak, <clears throat> who plays the student, Jimmy. He is beyond adorable. He will steal your heart the minute you see him on screen. And then, of course, Gael Garcia Bernal plays Lisa's poetry professor and takes no interest in her until she does the unthinkable. She tries to pass off little Jimmy's poems as her own in her night class, uh, which sets up all kinds of ambiguity and potentials for many different things to unfold. And we see them all unfold. So let's take a listen to my exclusive interview with Sarah, which uh, I managed to squeeze in last week (laughs) during L.A. Film Festival as we go in-depth talking about cinematography, casting, the story. And I should point out that this is an adaptation uh, from an Israeli film. Uh, And that and... uh, uh, from Nadiv Lapid, and it was a 2014 film. What's unique is Navid has a male perspective on the film. Sarah has a, a distinct female perspective on it. So that's an interesting element to have unfold here. But take a listen to my conversation with Sarah Colangelo talking about The Kindergarten Teacher. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Well, I am so happy to be talking to you again. It's been a while since Little Accidents. I think the, yeah. I think the last time we got to talk was actually at the Spirit Awards uh, on the carpet for your nomination. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And it's been a while. <laughs> and once again, you have incredible visual tone, another incredible example of storytelling. And I was mesmerized beginning to end with the kindergarten teacher. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> this, it's like all I have done since you cut to black with little Jimmy in the police car 
that has stuck with me and all you hear is his voice saying I have a poem I have a poem <laughs> and that black knowing he's in the police car with him uttering those words you know over and over and you see him closed off that summarizes the ambiguity of one big aspect mm -hmm. of this film is his potential and his genius now closed off forever right and that is so powerful and it really serves to add even more ambiguity to the character of Lisa and what's been yeah. happening with her because the whole film mm -hmm. you, you walk this line about with ethics questions the crossing boundaries between student and teacher and is she really worried about him is she more worried about her? is this about her and mm -hmm. you then you throw it all at the audience in that final moment okay people it's up to you decide mm -hmm. and boy oh boy uh, you really knocked it out of the park with that wow thank you this is such an incredible incredible story and I have to hunt down the original Israeli version mm -hmm. yeah what you know going through this adaptation process because you're a female filmmaker that's going to put a different spin on it and I know how collaborative Maggie is and how she digs into these type of psychologically complex characters. So I'm curious as to your approach when you first got the idea to reimagine, re-envision this with your voice and Maggie's. Yeah. I mean, what happened was is that the, uh, the Israeli uh, producers, Talia... Um and Oznat came to me and pitched um, the story to me, and it was actually the, the original Israeli film was playing at Lincoln Center um, that week, so I went and, and I saw it, because the pitch is obviously kind of um, one that you can't, you know, it's about poetry, and it's about a teacher that's sort of um, starving to be part of the creative process, and, and you have the sense that she's a little frustrated, but I didn't know what that would feel like. Um, in the form of um, of cinema, and I and I saw the you know Nadav's um, original film and, and really fell in love with it. Um, but I also wouldn't have taken it on had I felt that I couldn't add anything new, um, you know, and and unique. And I and I really you know after I saw it, I, I really wanted to make sure that I was you know able to root it in a female perspective a little more. Um, and I think Nadav is, you know, was, was doing wonderful things with his film. I mean, he was talking about masculinity um, in Israel um, specifically, mm -hmm. and, you know, in a country at war. Um, he was, you know, delving into sort of the Sephardic Ashkenazi um, sort of racial relations, if you want to call it that, within Israel. Um, you know, he was looking at a lot, a lot of things within Israeli identity. Um, but, you know, I, I really wanted to root this in the United States, first of all, and in New York. Um, I, I, I felt that there was um, a conversation to be had about, um, this, you know, the space or, or lack thereof that we give art in this country. Um, and, and, I, and I really wanted to um, create kind of a new teacher um, with a, 
I don't know, with, with a greater, a, a woman that would have a little more agency. Um, and, you know, there was something about the, the character in the Israeli version um, that I think couldn't be, couldn't you couldn't just take her and plop her into the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something to me that felt like disconnected in, in a way. Um, and I guess you'd have to see the original to understand what I mean. Um, so I really um, went about, like, thinking about her backstory and um, her, I guess, her, her creative ambitions, too. And um, and and also having been a, a, a kindergarten teacher for 20 years in a public school. Um, and, I, and I kind of came up with this concept of her being sort of a Montessori or kind of Waldorf-style teacher in, in, in a New York public school and wanting to kind of push in our, a more kind of um, artsy agenda onto the kids and not being really allowed to. And, and that's kind of where it started. And, um, and then, you know, Maggie was very quickly attached. She, she was the first actress to read the script. And um, I think within like a day of reading it, um, called us and said, you know, I love this. Um, so she was involved creatively pretty early on. And, and um, you know, the two of us really worked together and kind of shaping Lisa and giving her a, a three dimensionality and I think hopefully a, a really rich emotional life. The the texture, I mean, this is a full the tapestry of Lisa is fascinating because when we meet her, she's in the classroom. And I'm and I'm glad that you mentioned you were going for that Montessori kind of teach. You know, she had had that kind of teaching experience mm-hmm. because you walk into public classrooms today, you don't see the kind of love and care and attention and the blossoming of every yeah. kind of discipline imaginable within a classroom. You've got growing yeah. gardens, you've got aquariums, you have art projects all over the place. You, yeah. I mean, it's just, and even descriptive notions about how to draw, how to write your letters. Uh, right. And it's done in a rhyming sort of format. It's all very artsy and very progressive. I, I love that, that here we have a public t- a public school teacher that you know had to have come out of some sort of progressive, um, properly funded environment for mm-hmm. what she's doing. Uh, but then we start seeing the differences at home and the differences in her own children. And then how... All of a sudden, she starts gravitating towards Jimmy, and the other children are kind of secondary. And that's when yeah. that's when heads that's when you really start spinning things. I hate to say it, but you do not disrupt a kindergarten kid when, during nap time. It's no, of course. I mean, it's very disturbing. I mean, there's something so there's something so disturbing about like the the waking you know, waking him up from the naps and even just the space, like Maggie and I were talking about this, but, you know, the space of a bathroom is so, um, so upsetting. Well, you know, like, I mean, that's, that was <laughs> creepy. That was yeah. creepy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It's meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is very, very disturbing. And the minute I saw her take him in the bathroom, it, you, you get this whole, ooh vibe. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you really, you kept pushing and pushing the envelope, but it's so fascinating. It's impossible to look away from this to see what is happening. And calling her whole ethics into question in terms of passing off a five-year-old's poetry as her own, that adds another whole layer of disturbance. And you really start to see 
this woman has, she's got issues. Yeah. No, she does. And I mean, it's certainly like the moral ambiguity of this story is oh. what really attracted me in the first place. And and I think there's a, a level of heartbreak, too, you know, um, that I think is in the script. But I think that Maggie um, does such a beautiful job bringing out. Um, yeah. I think she just has a natural relatability that imbues the character with a with sort of pathos, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I at least feel um, there are moments when my heart breaks for her. And, and, you know, with the plagiarizing of poetry, there's something of her wanting to, just for a moment, um, see what it's like or feel what it's like to, um, to feel a classroom's admiration or, or to... Mm-hmm. To feel a little bit of that, like sunlight on you in a classroom where you know where people are impressed by what you're making, and I think you know another thing that Maggie and I talked a lot about a lot was that, and I hope the film highlights is the subjectivity of art, and you know, are her are her own or Lisa's poems awful? Well, I don't think so. No. They're actually written by. We will come back to more of our interview with Sarah Colangelo later in the show. But right now, we're going to switch gears because the wonderful Jamie Lynn Lippman is with us live. Hello, Jamie Lynn. Hello. Thank you so much for having me back. Oh, my God. When I saw that you had the new film out, I immediately, I think before anybody even asked me, I said, I have to have Jamie Lynn back on the show to talk about this documentary. Um, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. This is quite a story uh, that you're telling. Three years in Pakistan, the Erica Du story. Wow. I remember when all of this went down, I saw the Nat Geo episode uh, from Hollywood to Hell that covered this a number of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. But... And this is just an incredible, incredible story. We, we're we seeing so much in the news the past few years about journalists that are imprisoned uh, in Myanmar, in the Middle East. But here, here is an actor who thinks he's just, you know, picking up leather goods and bringing them back to the United States because we all know actors need to make money wherever they can. Um, and he gets stopped, and it turns out that Opium is apparently being smuggled in the leather goods that he's picking up and bringing back for this vendor in the United States. Um, Incredible, incredible story. I'm curious, Jamie Lynn, what led you to tell this story now? Because you really dig deep. You get a lot of interviews in here. You've got dramatizations of the actual events that transpired, such as in the Pakistani prison. Uh, but I'm curious, because Nat Geo had already done something and so much time has passed, what made this timely and topical for you? Well, so I've known Eric since he was 17 years old. I knew him before, during, and after this happened. Mm-hmm. And I had found out about it by opening the newspaper and seeing the headline and just said, oh, my God, like, that's my friend. And I had contacted his mom back then and asked, you know, is there anything I can do? And cut to years later after he got out, I was making this documentary about actors. And I interviewed him, and he told me all these stories about what he went through. And it was just shocking and heartbreaking. And I I kept thinking, this needs to be its own story. This needs to be its own thing. Mm -hmm. And I've always 
kind of in the back of my mind, and I knew that I couldn't incorporate that into the actor's documentary because as soon as somebody hears some of that stuff, they would be like, what? what? Yeah. And this is at a time when documentaries weren't quite as big as they are now, weren't quite a thing, nor did I know I would be still making them this many years later. And it was right after I was um, about to put out When the Bell Breaks mm-hmm. in February 2016. Um, I put the film out last year, but anyways, I was watching Jim the James Foley story on HBO, and I was so connected to that film, and I just said, I know what I'm going to do next. I'm going to tell Eric's story. I'm going to tell his story. And you know, the reason it was so important to me, and I, after I had already gotten so far into this project, is when I went and watched up the Walk of the Broad. And I think that I don't just count the show as a great show, but, but the problem with that was that, you know, they crammed in one interview, and it was just about a year and a half of that story that he was mm-hmm. there for three years. Right. And I wanted to tell the story of his whole life, the beginning, middle, and end. And I also wanted him to tell it in his own words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's very, that's very, very effective that the bulk of this story is, are your sit-down interviews with Eric himself. But, and you very rightly, as you point out, you do have the beginning, the middle, and end. You set the tone for who Eric is, and you give us a sense of his personality growing up, um, his hopes, his dreams, his desire to be an actor, his desire to support himself. What happens when his career is starting to take off a little, but he's got other side jobs, and then this happens, and then what has happened for him since he ultimately was released from the Pakistani uh, prison. And, you know, if people don't know the story, I think they're going to be absolutely horrified that he originally had a death sentence. Yeah. Yeah, he was told uh, he would be hung when he was arrested and then taken to a man where he was tortured for three days straight for information he didn't have because he didn't do it. And yeah. he was proven innocent. And that's the thing about it is, like, I think that's also it was so important is because Eric is an extraordinary human being. I mean, you can sense that from the film. Mm-hmm. But he's been like that since I met him. And mm-hmm. he's so giving and so selfless. And I felt in Locked Up Abroad, you didn't really get to know who he was. And he got a lot of, you know, he got made a lot of fans, but he also had a lot of people questioning his innocence. Mm-hmm. And I just felt the whole story really wasn't told at all. You know, he was proven innocent and maintained his innocence under the point that he was going to be able to go home early as long as he pled guilty. Right. And he chose his pride over his freedom, and I just admire that. And I think for him to go through all that, he is an incredible inspiration. And that's what a lot of people have found in watching this film, that you really appreciate your life and who you are and how you can get through anything because you watch a man who they didn't, he didn't let this break him. Mm-hmm. Well, and something that's very striking too is by hearing this in Eric tell this story and we find out how he made, he made friends in prison with hijackers. Um, yeah. A Pan Am flight 73. Uh, you know, he befriended politicians that were incarcerated in Pakistan I mean, it's and it's easy to see how he could do that because he comes across as so genuine, so personable, and very much a "What the heck am I doing here?" And everybody has to—they all know that they're there for a good reason. So <laughs> I can see mm-hmm. why they would gravitate and why they would befriend him. I mean, here he was, the lone American, and an actor to boot. Um, 
so, you know, it's it, all these little things that just we get to see it unfold. But then what you also do is you do these dramatizations. Talk to me about the importance of the dramatizations and how you chose which sequences from his incarceration to to dramatize. Well, it was something that was always from the beginning, something that I knew I wanted to do, that I would put a priority in my budget to make that happen because I wanted the audience to actually see what he went through. And it's one thing to hear it, but I really wanted them to feel it. And I wanted, that's why I chose to do it as an isolated narrative. Mm-hmm. And that section is right when he was caught and went to remand and he was tortured for three days straight. He went through that every single day for three days. And not only survived that, but, but kept his innocence, held his head up high, and didn't cop to something that he didn't do. Mm-hmm. And when I hear him tell that story, I really felt it was, it was just a conscious decision to make sure that it was played out for the audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we were on, we shot at the Firestone Tire Plant in Southgate, and, you know, uh, my production designer, Kendra, who's just incredible, you know, Eric walked onto that set because he was a step coordinator for us, and he was such an asset and resource. He's also an executive producer of this film. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, with bloodshot eyes looked and said, this is exactly what it looked like. And I wow. knew that I would have the source to be able to tell it properly and mm-hmm. play it out exactly how it happened. Well, and I have to commend you on your sound design in those dramatization sequences because, number one, the performances by the actors portraying a young Eric and his captors and the interrogators who are torturing him and beating him and kicking him, you know, that is brutal enough to watch unfold in performance. But then your sound design really punctuates the sound of fists and feet hitting and kicking, you know, flesh. And you have the camera you know, we'll cut away to a facial shot of a of a torturer, of a captor, but we hear the sound. And it's a very powerful, powerful moment when that happens because we're not seeing it, but we're hearing this mm-hmm. this horrifying bone crunching. Um, so, I mean, really well done to really convey the intensity and the brutality. Will Tabineau, who did the sound design, and then Stephen Light, who composed the score. I mean, I think that I, I worked with them both on my last film, and they just really hit it out of the park. And in sessions that Will and I were in, we really talked about, like, what we wanted to feel and hear, you know, while all this was going on. And we actually premiered at London's North Hollywood on Friday, um, and we had a premiere there Friday night. And mm-hmm. it just made all the difference to be able to hear that come alive in the theater. There was yeah. really nothing like it. Well, it's, you add another element, too. Stephen Light actually does scoring for you uh, with this. And what I found very interesting about the score is that more than mirror or pick up the thematics of the horror of being in a Pakistani prison, it picks up the light, upbeat attitude of Eric. And mm-hmm. I, and I you know I'm curious as to your thoughts and your considerations when working with Stephen, you know what you wanted for a score to arrive at this meld, at this blend. Well, my my biggest influence for the score, I was 
pretty much the film Good Time, which came out last year by the Sassy Brothers. I, I'm beyond obsessed with that score because it drives the film from start to finish. And it's not about recreating that at all. It's about recreating the tone and the feeling and mm-hmm. looking for those elements. So that's the soundtrack that I kind of gave them and said, I want, this is more experimental, it's a little more outside the box, and I want to just kind of have this tone. And then in addition to that, you kind of take it where you want. So he brought so much to the table, like with having the uh, Serenge Indian music composed like from India and adding all that. So he just really, you know, took it to the next level. And I just couldn't be more, you know, thankful and impressed by what he did. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was a standout for me as I'm watching the film. And I hear... You know, early on, before we get into the torture, while we're still learning about Eric as a, as a young boy and, you know, his his antics and his boisterousness as a youth, uh, mm-hmm. and the music really picks up on that. But as we learn more about him, you know, we see that, that this is who he is. He's upbeat. He's positive, And the music reflects that throughout the film. I mean, so that I think you really, that was a superb decision that you made for what you wanted uh, from that oral standpoint. Uh, now, this, this particular documentary, Jamie Lynn, unlike so many where you don't know, have a through line, people aren't sure where they're going to go. It's going to depend on what interviews are coming out, what footage they're getting. Here, I suspect that you already had an idea of the through line that you were going to have from youth to incarceration to, to present day. So I'm curious. It, you know, it made it a lot easier because I know Eric. I know the story so well. And Eric also wrote a novel. So simultaneously, he hasn't published it yet, but he's going to. Um, while he, we were making this, after reading 400 pages, and it goes so much deeper into the prison life, mm-hmm. um, and simultaneously, we developed a feature of this. So Michael Green, who you're having on shortly, yes. he's the screenwriter, and we took Eric's book and the old script, and we collaborated over the period of a year and put together the feature in the pitch deck. Um, so going into this, I knew exactly what I wanted to tell and the way that I wanted to tell it. There's definitely things that unfold as we're making it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the storyline of the investigative, like trying to track down, down Ray. Right. Yes, in my mind, in the end, I thought I'd be sitting there with him. And that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that as I move forward, and, you know, with the documentary, a lot of things, you, you know, you're trying to book Bill Richardson eight, six months in advance and it doesn't work out and all of a sudden it works out. <laughs> You know, there is a lot left to be discovered, and you're also getting the answers in Eric's own words. Mm -hmm. But it did make it a lot easier because I knew who the players were. I knew who I needed to reach out to. And in a sense of prepping for this film, it still took, you know, from start to finish. And we started in May 2016, and here we are now in the theaters, and that's, you know, releasing on iTunes tomorrow. Um, But it, it was a lot easier because, unlike in the outbreaks, everything is unfolded. I mean, right. I knew, you know, where I was starting and where I was finishing. Um, just having that kind of, um, it already spelled out, made it a little easier to tackle going into it. And, of course, I would be remiss not to ask you about the wonderful editing job that Samantha Smart did. Oh, yeah. God, she's <laughs> bless her. I hope I have her forever. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. How challenging was the edit on this? Because so you knew so much of what you had um, and what you were getting. 
did was this more challenging or equally as challenging as when the bow breaks, which you're accumulating footage and you're not and you don't really know where a lot of this is going. Here you at least had a map. You had a road map with this one. Did that help or yeah, help we, we hinder? Worked, absolutely. We work the same way and that we always start out with an outline and you know what needs to be covered, the tone of the film. Uh, when it comes to the narrative stuff, you know, I go through every single step of that and pull every take and tell her, you know, kind of how I want this cut together. But I always start with her by giving her the footage and a, and a map and then letting her come to me back with a rough cut. Mm-hmm. And then through that, we usually do, I'd say on this film, probably 30 cuts mm-hmm. to get to the end. And then we do working sessions where we kind of go over what doesn't need to be here. The biggest challenge with this was cutting it down because there was a point where we were at a two-hour and, you know, 25-minute film, and I'm like, we just can't put out a long documentary like that. Right. Like, we need to cut some of this, but, but there's so much to include, and that was the most challenging part. And really what works what was helpful for me is having my, I have two cinephile friends, you know, one of them, Michael David Lynch, who I think you've had on the show. Oh, I know Michael well. <laughs> yes, I believe you. Yeah. And then my friend uh, Jack, who's just, you know, he watches more movies than, if not me, the same. Um, I get my filmmaker friends that I really value who are just hugely into cinema. And those are the people who I want to come in and say, like, what would you, what would you cut it? Like, when we get to a you know, further place in this film. Mm-hmm. And so they were extremely instrumental in helping with that. Um, yeah, but we just, I mean, she's, she's a storyteller. She really can take an outline and, and know what you want. And then a lot of it's talking about tone and feeling and what we're trying to convey right. and what's more important than the rest. So a lot of it is going back and forth and just mm-hmm. kind of cut after cut after cut until I feel like, okay, this is it. Mm. Well, unfortunately, you know I could talk to you forever, but unfortunately, <laughs> your friend Michael Green is on hold, so I got to br- I got to bring him on to talk about his film, some some film called Live, you know. Uh, yes. But I mean, a job well done again, and I have to say, what I love with three years in Pakistan, Jamie is, I see your growth as a storyteller and a director. Between when the bow breaks to this one, there is definite oh, definite growth in you as a storyteller, as a director, and that I love seeing more than anything else. You do. Oh, I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. But I mean, this one is. Hey, I want a DVD version that has the other, the rest of it, the two hours and twenty five minutes, uh, <laughs> because right, we'll, see. we'll see what we can do. But in the meantime, everyone, if you live in L.A., please go to Lemley's. It's playing at the Lemley's North Hollywood until October 4th, four and, shows a day. And then tomorrow, VOD digital and VOD tomorrow, everywhere, everybody can see it. And in today's political climate, it is still as timely today as when all of this unfolded for Eric over a decade ago. Um, it's just it's very job well done. Job well done, woman. Thank you. And Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I love coming on. Oh, I love having you. So now get to work on another film so you can come back again. I will. Have a great day. Thanks, Jamie Lynn. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And Jamie Lynn Lipman, Three Years in Pakistan, The Erica Dew Story. And now, now we're bringing 
a partner in crime of Jamie Lynn's. We're just segueing everywhere. The wonderful Michael Green is joining us. Hey, Michael. Hello, Debbie. How are you? Well, I am so thrilled to be talking to you. I just talked to your buddy, Jamie Lynn, about her documentary that you have a part in as well. Yes. And, you know, when I found that out, I was like, oh, my gosh, we didn't even plan to have... This was not pre-planned. It was just happenstance that you were both ending up on the show today. Yes, that is uh, quite a coincidence. (laughs) But, you know, we're here talking about your film of Alive. Asante Jones, who plays Detective Culvert, was on on the show last week. And I have to say, this is another, you know, this is another breakthrough. It's another film language, so to speak. It's another style, and it's a cautionary tale, and one that, after another hacking of Facebook over the, you know, within the past 96 hours or something, is something that we all need to be more cognizant of. What is the genesis? What caused you, what prompted you to put together this story of live and this poor woman, Linda Johnson? Um, I'm getting, I can hear myself. Uh-oh. It's like I, I talk and then I delay and then it, it comes right into my, Uh-oh. Like I can hear it. I hear. Pam's looking at the board here and our boards are fine. Cause I could hear, I could hear you with Jamie as well. So, well, that, that often uh, happens when, when people are on hold. Yeah. Because it plays on the, uh. On the on hold. Do you, you want to... Let me try one thing. Hold on one second. Okay. Let me try one thing. Hold on. The beauty... Okay. Let me see if that works. No, I still hear myself. You That's still hear yourself. And Pam's... Yeah, should I just call right back? Yeah, why don't you try that? Let's try that and call back okay. and see if, if there's a better connection. So okay, let's do that, Michael. Right okay. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. So... Michael is going to call us right back. This is the beauty of live radio. Um, you know, it happens, people. Sometimes if you're on cell phones, if if we have cross-connects with publicists uh, doing the call, uh, linking, sometimes there is reverb and echo. Or if you have the radio on or the computer on in your house and you're watching and listening. Myriad of factors come into play here. Um but hopefully we get a we get a clean line here. We ready, Pam? All right. How's that, Michael? Is that better? Uh, let's see. Yes. No, it's still. I I literally am hearing myself. Yeah, because you're crystal clear on and, this and, end. And the thing is, I'm I actually call from a landline this time. Huh? Yeah. I mean, you're crystal clear on this end. Okay. Absolutely, Um, Crystal. You're coming through perfect uh, for the live broadcast. Well, it's just that I can hear, I can hear myself. Mm -hmm. Like on that little delay, it comes right back into my ear. Hmm. I don't know why that's that's happening. Um, Okay. Well, I'll do my best. Okay. I'll just take it away from my ear when I'm talking, and that should be fine. Okay. Terrific. So, give it. Tell us about the creation of this film live what was the impetus for this 
What was the idea to tell this story of this woman, Linda Johnson, who basically starts living her life with Facebook live streams? Okay, well, it, it came down to, you know, I was actually, I was shooting this pilot that kind of had, uh, it was kind of like an Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, like, let's make a real news broadcast thing to, to make it feel like, uh, you know, people are, it was, it was actually a reboot of The Tingler. Um, and so during the making of that, I just, I, I kind of, in the research of that, I just got into, um, like, what would Orson, what, like, what platform would Orson Welles use to do War of the Worlds in today's times? Mm-hmm. And, and that was definitely social media. And so I've been trying to, you know, like many filmmakers, I've been shopping my scripts, I've been trying to get funding, I've gotten close to getting funding on a couple projects, only to get pushed back out into the deep cold water again, um, deals falling through. And so I thought, okay, social media platform, um, who do I have around me who could help, who wants kind of the same end goal? And I found some people that had access to cameras and we could do this thing for basically next to nothing. And I just came up with this. It, it, it literally was like waking up in the middle of the night. It was October of 2016 and saying, this is, this is the story. A woman gets abducted while doing a live stream on Facebook. And then everything, then it was just about kind of shape, like creating that story. And, well, why was she on Facebook? Why was she not more aware? And, and it's kind of creating this very in-depth backstory and then creating the story from there. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where it was born from. Wow. And, I mean, I love the story. And I love Kelly, Kelly Green, uh, who plays Linda Johnson and the way she engages, but also how oblivious she is because we're seeing, you know, it's like we're looking at the computer screen and we're seeing all the comments that people are posting during her live streams. And while they're warning her of certain things, she is just oblivious to to all. And I think that's a great, so many people are oblivious to who is watching, who's seeing what they're doing. And then you bring in, this private investigator, you bring in a hacker and elements of the dark web, you, you just, you push the envelope with this one. And you take it to places that the average social media user is not thinking about. And that's, that is what I love about this, this concept. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, I appreciate that you you definitely see see kind of the details that we went to on this, and it was um, I think I think that we I think social media is is just in on that side of things we we're just not aware of how much information we're putting out there, mm-hmm. and just little things like you could be taking a picture of your kid in front of their school or 
they could have a logo on that it identifies their school or or you could be in a you know people get they go on vacations and they they take pictures while they're on the vacation and they're just announcing to the world hey i'm not at home anymore mm-hmm. and i think that it i think in this situation we just looked at someone who was very we wanted to create a character who was very naive mm-hmm. about social media and kind of her backstory of being having a very controlling husband and who wouldn't allow her to have social media before mm-hmm. and and then when she became separated from her him she jumped out there she spread her wings and just wasn't hip to how dangerous what she was doing was mm-hmm. and the more attention she received the more she did it and then she just put it all out there mm-hmm. and and just had no idea that these these darker forces were were coming for her. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I love the way you follow you follow that whole thing. The more she puts out there, the more ambiguity you create. Especially the way you have this structured with this PI who goes to the police and says, "Hey, I think this woman's been kidnapped. Here's why I think this." And he feeds tiny little bits of information at a time. So you have us wondering. Does he know more than he's saying? Is the ex-husband involved? Who is this hacker guy that somehow the PI got information from and video of? You set the stage so that our mind goes in so many different directions. And that makes all of these interrogation scenes in which Asante is involved even more compelling. And then you toss in... You keep your camera angle on those interrogation scenes, just like in a police station with the camera up in the corner of the of the room, shooting down. So it's a very voyeur, voyeuristic kind of look. And you never see the P.I.'s face, so there's always that degree of uncertainty. You have all these little layers and textures in here, Michael, that make this very effective. Well, I, I appreciate you, you recognizing that. I mean, we wanted to stay very true to the found footage genre mm-hmm. and and actually tell a, a cool story. And so <clears throat> it was one thing of, of having the idea of a woman getting abducted while doing a live stream on Facebook, but, but then how do you tell the story after that? Mm-hmm. And so um, we wanted to, I mean, that actually made it for kind of an, easier film to shoot because we didn't have to do so many angles right. for everything. Um, it was pretty much just one, one setup and then, and go basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we, we wanted to keep it authentic. We wanted, we wanted it to feel like any view that you're seeing was, was something that could have been accessed somehow. Mm-hmm. And by having this hacker, Patrick Flanagan, and even Eddie Hill, the private detective, mentions it is, hey, he could be watching us right now. Mm-hmm. And I think we live in that kind of a world now that even if you have, um, like, I mean, we live in a world where you just have to assume cameras are on you 24-7. Because yep. if it's not some closed-circuit television security camera from some building across the street, it's someone, someone's pulling out their phone mm-hmm. if something's happening. So um, I think that made that somewhat believable in, in the way that we, we shaped and told the story, is mm-hmm. that, okay, 
she's at a record shop. Well, record shops have security cameras, so that gives us a little right. piece of the story. And if, and if a private detective was really piecing this together with the aid of this hacker, they could realistically kind of reconstruct a timeline for mm-hmm. when she did get abducted or even prior to getting, getting abducted and just by digging a little bit. And that's, that's kind of the, the, that's how that came about, and, and it allowed us to stay true to a, the found footage genre. Mm-hmm. Well, I know last week Asante was saying how much he liked uh, this particular method of shooting because all of his scenes are inside, you know, he's in the police station. And so there's just that one camera angle. And he said that was much more freeing for him in terms of performance. He didn't have to worry about camera blocking or anything like that. It was just, you know, he could he had more freedom of movement with his hands, with his body positioning. And I found that to be quite interesting from an actor's perspective about how much more he how much he really enjoyed the way that you were shooting this. Did you have any idea how much he was enjoying the freedom that you gave him? Uh, maybe not so much how much he enjoyed it, but, I mean, Asante is such a pro. He and, is. you know, that was, I mean, kind of when we, were, when we were casting this, we also looked at, okay, one, we have to get fairly unrecognizable people, even though Asante's got, He's probably the most recognizable yeah. person, and we feel like at that point with private detectives and, and detectives and stuff, that's probably okay. But, um, you know, I think that the whole idea was that I did want the actors to be free in these scenes. And so we would go into each scene with basically, like, here's the scenario, here's what you know at this point, here's what you don't know, mm-hmm. and basically go and mm-hmm. let's and and this is what we want to accomplish in this and and so i had so it was a very detailed story and i knew each little segment what i needed and i mean i remember Asante was kind of freaked out about that like okay all right so we're doing that did we did we get what we need and i'm like yes absolutely more than enough and then all right now we're moving on to this this and this is now what information you have and this is what you're reacting to so there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on, but everybody just managed it brilliantly, and I, I feel like we did just a great job with getting a group of actors who just really brought like this natural, it just felt so real, mm-hmm. everything they were doing, mm-hmm. like every role in this. I, th- I thought everybody did an amazing job, and considering it's all improv, I mean, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Well, you had your story, and Asante was even alluding to that, that the story was very intricately planned out, but then you let everybody have a free flow to some degree with the actual dialogue, you know, just responding and, you know, reacting, responding to things. And, you know, it really adds to the authenticity of the situation, of the reality of it, and the actual possibility that, this is unfolding. Something like this is unfolding somewhere right now. And, you know, that, you know, sometimes it's best not to overthink and to just go with the flow. And I think this is, this is one of those times. You know, I'm curious, Michael, what was the learning curve like for you jumping into this feature? 
because I know you've done some uh, some series before. You've done a TV movie. You've done shorts. Um, plus, you're also an, a very experienced editor. So I'm curious how your skills as an editor came into play, aiding you as a director when you're envisioning what you need in terms of coverage and shots. Well, that's a that's a really good point. I I I think if I if I wasn't editing this, it would have been just a completely different task as a director and, and as telling the story. So uh, to me, editing is just an extension of the storytelling. And I mm-hmm. think it's such an important part to the whole story making process. And so we actually were shooting little pieces of this. I mean, we, we shot this film probably over the course of a year just when we could kind of pull people together mm-hmm. and pull locations together. And it wasn't like a traditional, okay, we've got two weeks to knock this out. We we kind of, because we were also, at the same time, this was living on a real Facebook page. So these moments were happening on the on Linda Johnson's actual Facebook page. So we, we maintained this page. It's still up, actually. Um, and so... From an editing standpoint, I was also editing this as I was going along. So I I really had uh, a nice window into what was missing and, Mm -hmm. and, and when we needed to do, like when we needed, okay, we need something to fill in this. We need something to bridge this to that. And so we could basically just kind of on the fly, we saw kind of what was missing in a sense. I mean, less on the fly. I mean, this, again, this did take, we, we shot over the course of a year, mm-hmm. basically. It was a very slow process. But almost in a sense, like shooting a documentary. Like you, you start to, you, the, the story does shape as you're, as, you're, as you're doing the edit. And you start to see, okay, we need this. We need, you know, this, this needs to, to, to go here. And that needs to go there. And, that, and, then, and because I was editing it, I was able to kind of move things around and, and really live with it. And, I mean, my life during that year was getting up early in the morning, editing, going in, because I, I work in commercial casting. That's how I pay my bills. Go in, cast all day, see like 150 amazing actors, <laughs> come home trained, and edit again. Mm-hmm. And then days off, okay, let's shoot something. Or weekends, okay, let's let's get this shot. And and that's that's kind of how we did it. Um, but but the editing side of it was so important to to shaping the story and, mm-hmm. and kind of seeing it laid out on a timeline. Mm-hmm. What did you, because this is really your first big feature film, what did you learn about yourself in the process of making live that you can now take forward into future projects? And hopefully more future more feature films. That's a great question because I you know I I'm finally getting a chance to kind of reflect. Mm-hmm. And um, because we this this just got officially released a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And um, I guess for me the biggest lesson I learned was more in. You know, I had 95% of this thing edited by the time I took it to a 
post-production company to help me get it across the finish line. Mm -hmm. And I think once it was out of my hands, which was very uncomfortable to just (laughs) hand over my baby and say, okay, you guys can kind of shape this. Maybe, you know, let's see what you guys can kind of tighten this thing up and change some things around. Um, I guess the biggest thing I learned out of this entire process is no matter how exhausted you are at the right when it's you're getting it over the finish line, you still have to go at it as if it's day one and don't relent on your your standards. So so there were things like there's things that I see in the film mm-hmm. that I had given you know, like I was like pretty specific. Uh, I want to change this up. I want to change that up. And we were so slammed with the distributor to get it delivered mm-hmm. that something slipped slipped through the cracks. And hindsight, I think it would have been a thing where, okay, I don't care if it's two in the morning. I'm coming in, and I'm looking at this thing before it gets sent off. And I don't care if it takes three more days to render, kind of a thing. So I guess it was just like. In the 11th hour, it was like so much was going on. And this is really, it's more of like the, the business side of it, I, right. I think, where I, I just allowed a couple of things to slip through the cracks. And, and that's frustrating. And so, because I'm an absolute perfectionist, and so I just, it was just that, those, those couple of things where it's just like, okay. It's almost, I go back to something I learned I was shooting this music video, and it was it was like 110 degrees out in South Central LA, and it was like, you know, we didn't want to we wanted to get this one shot. We're like, well, let's just try and do it like fake Steadicam style. <laughs> we don't want to pull out the dolly and the track. And this guy, who was who was like location manager and a filmmaker himself, he said, you know what? If you want to get that shot, take the dolly track out. Let's get this thing set up and let's get that shot because you're going to be so disappointed if you don't mm-hmm. get it when you start editing this thing. And so, like, that was such an invaluable lesson and it kind of, like, it, it, it carried over 99% of into this film, but there was just a couple things that had I pushed a little harder, I think I would have gotten just what I feel like would have been, like, 99.9% perfection. <laughs> and so that, that's, that's the lesson I learned, is that if you're, you know, to, to stick to your guns from start to the finish. Well, I'm glad you stuck to your guns. And okay, you didn't get 99.9, but in my <laughs> book, you got 99%. Um, I thoroughly, I've watched this twice already. And each time I, I pick up something different. Um, watching Kelly as Linda Johnson is really it's fascinating to watch how she morphs and changes over the course of time uh in her interaction on social media but job well done michael where can everybody see live right now it's pretty much on every vod platform with the exception of spectrum and at&t Yes, I noticed it wasn't on Spectrum because I have Spectrum. I guess. As do I. That was very frustrating. It's, tell me about it. It's very frustrating. 
But, uh, you know, I always I like to send them emails complaining about what they don't have. That's awesome. So, <laughs> but, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, this has been f- wonderful talking to you. I hope you'll come back on the show again because I know you got more projects coming up. Oh, we do. You know, me and Jamie with uh, the, the Price of Pride, uh, the Eric Aude story, we're, we're hoping that, that we can get that thing jumped off. That's a great story that yep. needs to be told outside of the amazing documentary yeah. that, that she put together. Well, I'm going to have both of you back on for that one when you get it done. But, Michael, again, Absolutely. thank you so much. And everybody, unless you're on Spectrum or AT&T, <laughs> you know, live, you know, it is, it is a cautionary tale. It's a fascinating, fascinating uh, presentation. And I think we can all, we'll take a step back from social media after you watch this one, let me tell you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Debbie, so much for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. And that was Michael Green talking about his feature film, Live. So that is all the time we have today. Um, obviously, I guess the rest of Sarah's interview, we're either going to run next week or it'll just be up on my, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, the Kindergarten Teacher comes out October 12th. Three Years in Pakistan, the Eric Audu story is out now at the Lemley NoHo uh, through this Thursday. Tomorrow, VOD and Digital Everywhere. Michael Green's live on VOD and Digital Everywhere except Spectrum and AT&T. And next week, people, classic film fans, musical theater fans, she's back. The lady, the legend, the icon, Carol Cook, is back live next week on Behind the Lens. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 